All right, so we're going to uh, dive into 1 Peter chapter 5 this morning. Um, we've had a wonderful study of this first epistle of Peter uh, this quarter, and we'll conclude this uh, first letter that he wrote today. And then, um, as I mentioned, we'll move on next week into uh, the second epistle uh, written by Peter. And so our, our kind of overall goal for this quarter has been to study from the epistles of Peter and look at uh, different events in his life that influenced his writing and sort of what he chose to write about um, to his uh, recipients, uh, which were Christians primarily in the area of Asia Minor, but more globally just Christians in general, including those of us here today. Um, so just as a uh, once again reminder, um, we're studying the uh, first epistle of Peter currently, um, whose overall theme is to prepare Christians for dangers that would be coming from outside of the church. Um, the Christians, especially those in, in and around Rome, would soon experience a great persecution under the hand of Nero. And Peter is writing to these to give encouragement and to really prepare them so they could endure um, the oncoming, the oncoming uh, persecution. And then we will start next week on 2 Peter where the focus will be more so preparing Christians for assaults that would take place from inside the church. And we'll dive into that uh, text next week. All right, so um, a lot of what we looked at throughout this uh, first epistle of Peter is strengthening relationships between different individuals. And Peter's giving advice and practices for Christians to interact with one another and also interact with different units even outside of the church. Strengthening relationships is a large theme of 1 Peter. And in chapter 2, he began by discussing how Christ relates to the Christians, Christ being the cornerstone, the foundation upon which the church was built. He describes how Christians are to interact with the world, so to non-Christians, and how Christians are to interact with government and civil authority, even when that authority is the one exerting the persecution and, and threats upon the church itself. He spends some time discussing the master and slave relationship, as well as the important relationship between the husband and the wife. And then he concludes this section of the scripture, um, or of his epistle, describing um, tenets of interpersonal relationships between those of us within the church, right? Giving us ideas, suggestions about how we approach one another to ensure that we have unity, all right, the bonds of unity are essential all the time, but especially when hardships are coming from outside that would threaten the church. Banding together, sticking together would be an important um, trade of the church to get through the early persecutions. And here we have um, kind of our overall timeline of Peter's life. So we've said already that we think he's about the same age as Christ, so he would have been born around 1 B.C., 1 A.D., um, and then at some point in time in his early life, he was married. So we have evidence in Scripture that Peter did have a spouse. Um, and then he was called to apostleship around the year between 27 and 30 A.D., uh, when Christ started his earthly ministry. Um, famously, Christ told Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, 
and he gave Christ the keys to the kingdom. Uh, or sorry, Christ gave Peter the keys to the kingdom. Um, Peter was present for the trial and crucifixion of Christ. Um, he was a witness to Christ after his resurrection. And then Peter used those keys that Christ gave him on the day of Pentecost to preach the first gospel sermon. Um, Peter experienced his own persecutions. He was arrested at least three times as recorded in the book of Acts. And then at some point in time during Peter's life, um, most scholars believe that he traveled to Rome and he would spend the latter years of his life um, within and around the city of Rome. And it is thought at least that he authored these epistles we're studying this quarter um, from his time there in Rome. Preparing Christians for what we know historically to be a great persecution of the church um, that uh, Nero was soon going to be uh, initiating. And then Peter was eventually killed as a martyr for Christ somewhere around 65 AD. Now, as we'll look in our text here in chapter 5, one additional event in Peter's life or, or office that he held as well is that of an elder, a shepherd, or an overseer. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, that first verse, he writes, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. And we'll dive into those uh, exhortations here in a moment. Um, but Peter is going to be um, uh, speaking specifically to the elders or the shepherds of the churches that would receive this epistle. And he's appealing to them as a fellow elder. Now, where, when this took place is, is unclear. I just kind of put it up there on the timeline at some point. It could have been certainly earlier uh, before he traveled to Rome as well. Um, and the actual church where Peter served as an elder is also not completely clear. Um, a lot of individuals believe he was an elder of the church at Jerusalem, and that being kind of where his home base was um, before he would then travel to Rome. It's also possible that once he set up as Rome as his uh, location for the latter part of his life, he may have been an elder at the church at Rome. It's not fully clear where he served as an elder. Um, there is some traditions that would imply he was an elder at the church at Jerusalem. But regardless of where Peter served in that office, he would be using that position to make these appeals to those he was writing to. So we could say a lot about Peter, right? He was a fisherman. He was an apostle. He was an apostle of the inner circle of Christ. He was a man who made a lot of mistakes. He was impulsive. He put his foot in his mouth on multiple occasions. But one additional office or trait we can say about Peter was that he was appointed by a local congregation to serve as a shepherd for the Christians at that local church. So one more feature, Peter, that we can kind of add to our growing list of descriptors for this amazing individual. All right, so the title for our lesson today uh, is going to be Keys to an Enduring Church. All right, and I left the chapter off of that. So 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 14 uh, will be our text for today. Okay, so let's start out by reading this first section here of chapter 5. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, uh, but being examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. And we'll pause there. In this last section of the epistle, here in chapter 5, Peter is going to provide somewhat of an of a, uh, uh, imparting wisdom as he concludes this letter as a final push to strengthen the church in preparation for the persecution that would soon ensue upon those who would be reading this letter. And he's going to address two different groups of people. The first group that we just read about is the church leadership. Peter is providing some final words of encouragement to church leaders because effective leadership is going to be an essential component for a church that endures and a church that can endure hardship. All right? So he spent lots of time discussing different relationships, all right, preparing people for the hardships to come. His final words of wisdom are, number one, to strengthen the leadership or the eldership of the local congregations. All right, now we've seen, you know, across multiple passages of Scripture, um, different uh, references to this office of an elder. You know, there are different terms for it, elder, shepherd, overseer, uh, bishop, all right. In Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas... In their first missionary journey, they make a circuit across different cities in the middle and southern parts of Asia Minor. And then they revisit these cities. They revisit Lystra, Iconium, as well as Antioch there in Syria. And Luke writes, And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Paul and Barnabas went through several cities in their first missionary journey preaching the word of God. And then they would revisit those same cities after some time had passed and establish an eldership at each individual city. Paul also wrote to Titus, uh, one of his uh, uh, preacher protégés. Um, this is in Titus 1.5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, so scriptural evidence indicates that every city or every local congregation would have its own um, appointed group of individuals to serve as leaders, shepherds, overseers, elders to guide that local congregation. Um, Multiple passages um, speak to kind of the general role of an eldership. Um, in Acts chapter 20, uh, verses 28 and 29, Paul is writing to the Ephesian elders, and he says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. At least one of the role of eldership is to care for 
the spiritual well-being of an individual group of Christians. And you can see how that would be so important when external forces are putting pressure upon Christians that you have a group of individuals looking after the spiritual needs of those individuals. In James 5.14, James wrote, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Not only do elders or are they tasked with looking after the spiritual needs of the flock, but also their physical needs. All right. One of the obligations of an eldership is to ensure the physical health of its members and to ensure the, the needs are met physically of those within the congregation. So two roles at least, we can say, look after the spiritual welfare, look after the spiritual, sorry, the physical welfare and the spiritual welfare of those within a congregation. Um, and then in Acts chapter 11, there's also uh, indications for looking after the financial um, needs and welfare of the church. Acts 11, 29 through 30, um, Luke writes, So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Saul and Barnabas. So looking after and managing the financial uh, needs and financial matters of the church is yet another kind of function of the eldership. All of these functions, just in general, having strong leadership is important for any, you know, organization. You know, whether it's a school or a business, whether it is a church, whether it is a nonprofit agency, you've got to have one or more individuals leading that group for it to function in a productive and healthy manner. Exactly, yeah, even the family unit has to have strong leadership. You know, the father and the mother, as heads of the house, have to have a, a joint effort, a collaborative effort, to lead all of those aspects of even the family unit. All right? So, with this in mind, uh, Peter is going to provide some, uh, some suggestions or guides for the eldership The first one is there in verse 2. So after making this call based on his own role as an elder, he's going to say, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. All right? So the first task is work. An eldership is not a figurehead. It's not an honorary title where others are doing the work. All right? Elders are workers. They are servants within the church. And then number two, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. And, you know, Titus and Timothy speak to this as well. Um, In 1 Timothy 3 and verse 1, where Paul provides Timothy a list of qualifications for elders. Um, He writes, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. All right. The eldership is an office that should be desired and sought after by those who would take it. 
right? It's not something that you strong arm someone in, into performing. Shouldn't take a lot of you know, convincing or coercing to have one uh, fulfill this role. It should be a role that someone aspires to. And this idea of aspiring to it carries a connotation of, you know, you're starting out early in life thinking about eventually becoming an elder. And you are, over the course of your life, preparing yourself to take on that role. You don't aspire to something and then become that the next day. If you aspire to be an astronaut, it takes years of practice and training to eventually get there. Right? If you aspire to be a parent, all right, you don't become a parent the next day. You prepare, you take action to eventually get to that. If you aspire to be the CEO of a company, all right, you've got to work towards that goal in your career over time. And the same is true for an eldership. The aspiration to become an elder starts early in life and... You make that decision, I want to be an elder of the Lord's church, and then you work towards that over time. It's not something that you suddenly decide to do or that someone convinces you to do right, on the spot. James. Uh, I agree wholeheartedly, and, and Peter will write about kind of that idea about respecting those who are more aged in the congregation, whether they are an elder or whether they are anyone else who has just years of life on earth, they have so much wisdom, and elders especially, whether they are in the role or whether they have stepped down, as you indicated, you know, so much lived experience to pull from, so much wisdom and guidance and example you know, for, for everyone, really. All right? So, Peter says that elders are to shepherd the flock of God so that guard protect them, um, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So, this should be a happy task, not a burdensome task. All right? Any kind of leadership role, there's burden to that, but that burden should be borne with joy not with a sense of dread. All right, and then uh, the latter part there of verse 2, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. First uh, Timothy in his uh, qualifications in verse 3 says, elders are not lovers of money. And then uh, in Titus, Paul wrote in verse 7, must not be greedy for gain. Right, so the role of elder is not one that someone takes for financial gain. It's not a role someone takes for um, their own personal notoriety or to puff up their own pride. It's not for power um, to domineer over others. All right, those are not the functions of an elder or, or the reason why someone should attain or aspire to that role, right? It's to serve with humility as uh, as Peter will go on to write about. Yes. So there are, I'd have to go back and look, I couldn't quote it to you. There are some scriptural references that indicate um, there's, there's some leeway there 
when an elder is serving specific roles within the church to have some kind of financial compensation. But I would argue that that is not across the board as if it's always going to be a paid position. Unfancies your question or not. All right. Um, so then let's go on now to the, uh, the, the last section here where he speaks about elders. And this is really important. He says there in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge, uh, but being examples to the flock. What is the leadership style of a shepherd or of an overseer? Peter writes, they are to lead by example. He says, being examples to the flock, not domineering. Now, there are different leadership styles utilized, you know, across the world in different settings, whether it's your home, whether it's your place of business, or whether it's the church, right? Different leadership styles can be taken on by anyone in a leadership position. One style is that of a domineer, right? A king. If you are the king of your household, and then you tell everybody what to do. You tell your spouse what to do. You tell your kids what to do. You are the boss, you tell everybody what to do, all right? That is not the leadership style that Peter is writing about here of an elder. He says elders are to be those who lead by example, all right? The, the word you sometimes is a servant leader. You lead by serving others. Um, turn over to Matthew chapter 20. And let's see what Jesus describes as leadership style. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 through 28, Matthew writes, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercised authority over them. All right, so he's going to provide a contrast here. That's the domineering, authoritative leadership style, that of a king. And then he says, it shall not be among you. That is not the style that you should have. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, uh, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the style that Christ is advocating for, the style that Peter uh, references here in this epistle, and that is the style of an elder, all right? Someone who serves by example, someone who leads by serving others. And it goes back to this idea of being a workhorse, right? The way that you lead by example is by getting your hands dirty, doing the work, and then when others see that behavior and they imitate it, then they too will become workers. All right. And I think this carries true beyond just the role of an elder, but even in your place of business, even within your own homes. Leading by example is the style of leadership that Christ himself um, utilized in his own interactions with people. All right. Did he tell people what to do? Did he uh, coerce others or guilt people into doing things? Did he offer any kind of threat to individuals? 
Did he treat his apostles as if they were subordinates to him? No. I wouldn't use any of those terms to describe how Christ led his disciples. He led by getting his hands dirty, doing the work, interacting with people who nobody else wanted to interact with. Right? That was Christ's style, and therefore that should also be our style as well. And at the same time, we have obligations and responsibilities for elders, and there are also obligations and responsibilities for the members as well. The Hebrew writer wrote in Hebrews 13 and verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So while an eldership should have this role of oversight, but leading by example, the membership should obey, respect, and submit to these individuals. And the writer goes on to say, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So don't submit, but like complain about it or mutter under your breath, right? Submit with joy because these individuals, these men in this role, their goal is to look after your souls, that's their role. That's what they were put there for, is to look after your souls. So be joyful about their role and their work in watching over the souls of the flock. Are you telling me that the elders are not the complaint department? Are not the police department? Complaints. Oh, the complaints department. <laughs> well, speaking as an elder, I can say I get plenty of those complaints. Um, but the Hebrew writer says, without groaning. So maybe complain is the wrong word. Maybe it should be uh, constructive suggestions as opposed to complaints would be a better way of approaching it. Um, one of the books I've been uh, reading as I've been studying First Peter uh, was written um, by Rubel Shelley uh, back years ago. And I, I like this section that he wrote. He says, so many problems would never arise if the Eldership Membership Association worked properly. Willing and active leaders would challenge the church to be fruitful in its work. Responsive members would apply their energies to the implementation of sound ideas. Unity and progress in the gospel would result. Yes, right relationships are important. You know, for a healthy church, whether it's here in 2023 or in, you know, the first century, a healthy church has a strong leadership that operates by leading through example. And it has membership that respects its leaders. Those are the qualities that Peter says are going to help this church that he's writing to get through those times of difficulty, and they are just as true today. Those will help our church here at Asheville Road get through our own difficulties when we have a great collaborative relationship between the leadership and everybody throughout the congregation. So then in verse 5, Peter's going to flex and move from the role of leaders and now I'll talk about how to have a healthy membership. So he spoke to the leaders, first of all, and their responsibilities. 
And now he's going to speak to the members and its important parting words he's going to offer to ensure a healthy church. So I'll read this next section, then we'll come back and dissect a little bit. So starting in verse 5, uh, so if this is 1 Peter 5, 5. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So, four principles we're going to go through. Principles that Peter is advocating for the members of the churches that he is writing to. The first one is respect the older members. And this was something that James brought up just briefly a moment ago. He uses, at least in the English translation, he's using this word elder uh, once again. But based on the context, it seems like he's not referring to the office of elder anymore, but rather to just the more aged of the congregation. So I'm going to reread this verse with that idea. So verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the older members of the congregation. Our older members, many of which are right here in this room today, have so many years of lived experiences. Many of you have served in the church for years. Many of you have raised your own children who are now grown and have their own kids. You have your own grandkids now. You have so much experience, so much wisdom that is essential to the vitality of a healthy congregation. And those who sit up here in this front section are young people. We as a strong, healthy church have to find ways of getting this group to interact with everybody else. Fostering that sense of mentorship, that sense of the ability to teach the younger people. Right? And this is counter to our world today. Right? In our world today, outside of these walls, um, we idolize youth, we idolize beauty, right? we try to get rid of any evidence of aging, right? And when someone gets so old, we toss them aside and we shift over to the next young, great thing, right? That is not how Peter says a church should function. A church should function in such a way that the young are subject to their elders. They listen, they respect, they honor their elders. This is not specifically spelled out here, but for there to be a great relationship between the elder members and the younger members, you've got to have respect from the young, but you've got to have engagement amongst the old. We need all of you and everybody else in that older setting to engage with the young people, to teach, to interact with them, 
to mentor them, to give them wisdom, right? It's a, it's a really, it's a two-way street. In order to have that intergenerational relationship between our young and our old, we've got to have engagement amongst the old and respect amongst the young. And that's up to everybody to foster those relationships so that it can be a two-way exchange of mentorship and ideas, right? The youth bring energy to the church, and our old bring wisdom to the church, and both are essential elements of a healthy church. Peter knows that. He knows that for the churches in and around Rome and in Asia Minor, they would need vitality of the young and wisdom of the old to get through the hardships. And that's why he is writing to strengthen those intergenerational relationships. Number two, humility. So the latter part of verse five, he says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Pride is such a roadblock to a healthy congregation. It prevents us from asking for help. It prevents us from apologizing when we mess up, when we offend someone else. And it creates division when you've got one group looking down upon another group because they're puffed up of their own pride. You have division as opposed to unity. Peter is calling for humility of everyone, the young, the old, the overseers. Humility is an essential element of unity because when you're humble, you will ask for help so that when you're facing, whether it's physical hardships, spiritual hardships, health, financial, whatever they may be, if you are humble, then you'll ask for help amongst others. And pride prevents that. And then when we do mess up and when we do offend someone or speak or act without thinking, pride prevents us from apologizing, right? We say we swallow our pride and say, I'm sorry. And that is going to ensure that we keep unity amongst individuals of the church. Uh, Consider all the times that Peter learned his own lessons in humility, right? Christ exemplified this to the extreme. Christ washed the apostles' feet, right? What better way of exemplifying humility than getting down on your hands and knees and washing someone's feet, right? Peter was taught this numerous times. And think about in Galatians where Paul wrote about Peter eating with the Jews and ignoring the Gentiles, right? And Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 2, I withstood him to the face because he was to be blamed, right? Even Peter messed up in his latter years when he was the great preacher, the great missionary, the great elder Peter. Even in those times, Peter made mistakes, and would have to swallow his own pride and acknowledge his mistakes and apologize so that everyone can move forward and maintain the unity of not just the apostleship, 
but the unity of the entire church. Okay, uh, number three, verse seven. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Having a level of assurance, not being anxious. All right, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Uh, Jesus spoke a lot about anxiety in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, right? Just paraphrasing here. He says, if God will take care of the flowers in the field and the birds of the air, is he not going to take care of you? Right? Anxiety, it, it weakens our faith. Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, is saying, have faith. God knows your needs. If he'll take care of plants and birds, he will for sure take care of all of you. Anxiety weakens our faith. But to have a strong church, we need to have a strong faith and one that is depleted of anxiety. And then Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 2, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We rely upon God, but we also rely upon one another. And to help us get through difficult times, a healthy church shares the burdens. They do not fall on one person, but they are distributed across the congregation, right? And you think about if you're, if you're trying to hold up, you know, something that is very, very heavy and all the weight is centered upon one point, that one point is going to collapse and break. But if you distribute the weight equally across all these pillars, then through shared burden bearing you can support as much weight as you need but that becomes up to all of us we have to ask for help and we have to be willing to lend assistance when the call arises all right and then number four here vigilance in verse eight uh, be, uh, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So he returns to this analogy of Christ being the chief shepherd and says that shepherd is looking after the flock, but there's a lion out there prowling, circling the flock, looking for the weak spot. And when the weak spot is seen, that's when the lion will pounce and attack and try to steal away one member from the flock. Um, so what makes those weak spots in the flock? A lot of it's internal strife. Our own internal strife creates a chink in the armor it creates a weak spot in the flock that allows Satan to jump in. And so it's up to the leadership and all of the membership to ensure that we stay healthy and firm throughout so that that lion has no opportunity 
to jump in and pounce. All right, we will stop there. Didn't quite finish the uh, chapter, so I encourage you to finish up this afternoon and read through that. And then we will dive into 2 Peter next week. Thank you.